Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, what does it mean to be a modern warrior? First off, the elephant in the room. Warrior isn't a dirty word. A warrior is mindful. They seek excellence and have learned to control their aggression. It's about understanding leadership, developing individual resilience, and seeking consistent human optimization. Remember, lifting heavy isn't dangerous. Being weak is dangerous. Fortune favors the brave, and you're never given more than you can handle. This, then, is the Warrior You podcast. All call signs. Ready, ready, ready. Let's roll! How are you? Hey, what's happened since uh, we last spoke? Where does the podcast find you today, Mr. Trent? It is it is live in the brand new office in Grenfell Street in Adelaide and uh, with a whole new setup. And uh, I know we've had some feedback about uh, the sound. We're, we're still working on it. I think we're ironing out the bugs. And um, I'm hoping that for everybody out there, it sounds a lot better. Yeah, we're getting there. We're slowly getting there. I'm going to have to fly over and help my 60-year-old grandfather, oh, business partner. Oh. That is harsh, harsh and unfair, harsh and unfair. <laughs> anyway, it is what it is. Today, we're going to do do another leader, and we both are pretty excited about this one. We're, we're going to have a look at Margaret Thatcher as a leader. Yeah, I'm really, really stoked about uh, Margaret Thatcher as a leader. She, for me, is one of the greatest leaders of our time, of modern time. My and God, uh, really? I just want to... Yeah, absolutely. No, I really do think so. And um, and really around uh, her vision and her drive. And sure, she's got some failings, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure I've met too many perfect leaders. But uh, look, I want to kick off straight away um, with one of her quotes: "Being a leader is like being a lady. If you have to remind people, you aren't one." Um, for me, <laughs> for me, I think she's bang on the money. Yeah. So, what did she say? Being a leader is like. Being a lady, if you have to remind people, she's got some good quotes. She also said, at my, yeah. one of my favourite quotes is, "If you want to stop terrorism, stop reporting it." What do you What do you reckon she meant by that? Basically, that the foundational element to terrorism is to terrorise. Therefore, yeah. therefore, it needs to be publicised. If it's not being publicised, then you can fight a war against it, and no one knows it's happening. So it goes back into the shadows. It was around the time when. We're talking about, you know, aircraft hijackings and, you know, embassy sieges and all this mm. sort of stuff. Yeah, so the, the the problem is is that the media have a vote and and you know, what's the I guess what what's our expectation if it if it bleeds it leads. Yeah, and that's a brilliant point. The media does get a vote. 
And the media can also be an instrument of power and good if they're on the side of the government as far as terrorism goes. So they, they can make choices on what to report and what not to report as well. But yeah, no, you are right. It's a free capitalist market and they're going to, you know, the news doesn't sell. What, what sells is your attention. So they want your attention and if blowing a school bus up full of nuns gets your attention, the media is going to be pretty keen to report that so that uh, they get your attention and guess what? Then they get the advertising dollar. That's actually um, what that's all about. So born on 13th of October 1925 in Grantham, Lincolnshire. I love myself a good Lincolnshire cake. Have you ever had them? They're like full of plums and you serve them hot with uh, cups of tea. Anyway, her parents owned a small grocery store. Her father was a local Methodist pastor. Again, a sign of the times around yeah. that period that a lot of the leaders that we've talked about have had, have been staunch either Catholics or Methodists or... Conservative. Or, yeah, conservative Christians. Values, yeah. Yep. Yeah, really, they were very strong Methodist, had those strong Methodist principles, um, really resilient the whole thing around humility and character and individual endeavour and all that sort of good stuff. She went to Kesteveen, Kesteveen and Grantham Girls School. I'm going to put money on that, that you didn't pronounce that right. Dude, I don't pronounce anything right. I didn't, I got Gallipoli wrong once. So she went to, yeah, Grantham Girls School, 1939, 1943. Interesting backdrop that that was occurring uh, during the war. And she was on a scholarship. She was very bright, um, head girl, very good uh, oratory speaking skills, debating and the like, um, similar to Churchill. Yeah, and this allowed her to obtain a chemistry scholarship, which she attended in 1943. So she was no slouch. Yeah, and and did you know um, that she was also, from memory, only one or two years, I, I can't remember, we might have to check this out afterwards and put it in the notes, but I think she was only like one or two years older than the Queen. And so really? that there was, yeah, so as in the you know, the yeah, current queen. Queen now, yeah, the, the current queen. So she was only, uh, they were about the same age. Um, they used to have some pretty interesting conversations uh, in Buckingham Palace, yeah. Wow, that's so cool. I did not know that at all. She graduated in 1947, had a Bachelor's of Science, and during college she was heavily involved in the Oxford University Conservative Association, becoming the president in 1946. So she was paving her way to prime ministership even back then. Um, very similar to other presidents and prime ministers that we've talked about here, from a young age they were doing the, the right things with consistency and, and over time. Absolutely. Yep, that and compounding and interest. And it set behaviours. And you, you have to... I guess if we put ourselves back in her position, you know, it's just she's going through high school and then uni during World War II and then just after World War II. So, you know, putting ourselves back in that time, she was paving her way in a largely male-dominated, veteran-based, traumatised country and turning herself into a chemist. Right, and if you think about all the other leaders, all the other leaders who were who we don't even know about around her ilk that were doing the same thing. She was just the one yeah. that sort of sort of broke through that mold. Yeah, so she later worked as a researcher, get this, because she was a chemist for plastic companies and then became a conservative candidate in the 1950s. So she went to local government then then the national um, government. 
She yeah, she didn't make it though. Yeah. No, she was the youngest. Well, yeah. she was the only female candidate. In, indeed, in, again, in a very male-dominated political world. Yeah, um, she was. She failed to get elected, and then she married and had a couple of kids, and then she was successfully elected in 1959 to cabinet. So she kept coming back. Yeah, talk about um, yeah, tenacity, having perseverance and tenacity, and you know, having that vision and you know, train tracks. Yeah, you know, train track vision. When you and I were born, around the time you and I were born, she was the education secretary. In opposition, yeah. Yep. And and her platform was around actually spending cuts and policies designed to reward individual academic prowess. So she was very much the sort of conservative capitalist um, model. Yeah, counter-socialist. Yeah. Again, counter-socialist. Um, very Which they all were. Yeah, well, you're talking about the Cold War, and you know it was it was really sort of starting to come to its peak, and and we'll probably talk about this a little later, but you know that was that natural connection that she had with Ronald Reagan, who was in power at the, at the same time as her later on down the track. Right, and in her party, she was very, very bright, very driven, very anti-socialist, and it might surprise you to see that she was then voted as the as the leader of the opposition in 1975, which surprised a lot of people. She criticised Labor's high tax... And this is the reason you love her, obviously, because she's a liberal through and through, but... A conservative. A true conservative liberal. And she criticised Labor's high taxes, economic mismanagement, um, and she convincingly won the election in 1979, the year my little brother was born, and became mm. the UK's first female prime minister in 1979. Let's just put that into context. Yeah. And um, Blowing, isn't it? we'll talk about it later, but, you know, if anyone hated, if anyone ever hated the, the establishment around the unions, you know, this is the person who, and I'm not sure where that comes from. Maybe you can um, shed some light on that. But that's some background to, to Margaret Thatcher anyway. Um, and she did a few things in her career, which we'll talk about soon, and a couple of military-type things as well, which will just blow people's minds. Um, anyway, inspiration, motivation score. Trent, for this one, I gave a 7 out of 10. And I'll tell you why she didn't get a 10 out of 10 for me, and I know that perhaps you okay. and I differ a little bit with this, but, um, you know, she was she was very... I mean, 7 out of 10 is no slouch. She was very good at inspiring. She was a personal, stereotypical English person if that makes sense. She came from humble beginnings, from a Methodist background, um, you know, and she was able to connect with a huge base of the English population. When I listen to her talk, that's one of my aunties. Like, I hear my auntie Anne through her. Like The, the el- smart one, el- you know, yeah. the, the el- really eloquent, educated, yeah. eloquent, absolutely, it, it, you know, it's, yeah. it's really impressive how she's able to connect, not just with population but also you know those senior stakeholders but we'll talk about that a little later because she did start to lose her support as a result of shutting some of them out so that was that's interesting development as her career went on and we'll play a snippet of her speech somewhere in here governor reported that the marines in his defense of government in the defense of government house were superb they acted he said in the best tradition of the royal marines They inflicted casualties, but those defending Government House suffered none. 
He himself had kept the local people informed of what was happening through a small local transmitter he had in Government House. He is relieved that the islanders heeded his advice to stay indoors. Fortunately, as far as he is aware, there were no civilian casualties. When he left the Falklands, he said the people were in tears. They do not want to be Argentine. He said the islanders are still tremendously loyal. I must say that I have every confidence in the governor and the action he took. I must tell the House that the Falkland Islands and their dependencies remain British territory. No aggression and no invasion can alter that simple fact. It is a government's objective to see that the islands are freed from occupation and are returned to British administration at the earliest possible moment. I think that what, what you would hear when you listen to her talk is a real regulation of emotional control and intelligence coming through in the way she inspires and motivates. She was renowned for her principled leadership. You know, she stressed the importance of personal responsibility, hard work, quiet patriotism, those conservative values which you and I right now mm. think there needs to be more of in the world. So um, much more. Yeah, I mean, we're both, you know, obviously we should call this a conservative podcast. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but, but despite these humble beginnings and, and really tireless, tireless dedication to her work, she was able to just inspire so many people from the working class, from the poorer classes and from the rich elite. I think she was a, a firm but fair ruler, you know, who was seeking to restore social and economic order uh, to England, you know, during that time of the 70s uh, where it was quite economically unstable. You, you have to remember the oil crises of the 70s. Those sorts of things were impacting upon um, upon the UK. Um, you know, again, we've spoken about the Shah, but previously he was, he was charging the UK quite a substantial amount of an increased amount of um, uh, cost for, for oil, and that was having a significant impact on industry in, in the UK. Yeah, there is a real backdrop here, and I do I do feel like you and I would be a lot better suited to flare pants and platform shoes and hairy chests <laughs> better with cars too. Yeah, better oh, cars. Yes, how good would better, that go? so much better cars. I'd be. Maybe, uh, we'd be like who are the professionals? Those two guys, Bodie and Doyle. That'd be us. <laughs> yeah, and so it was an amazing period of time. You know, people living in Monaco, and the wealth started pouring in. And I'm I'm not joking about that. Like people were moving to Monaco. The Brits were starting to go to, you know, Spain for their for their for their holidays. They were travelling abroad. They was they were starting to feel like the Cold War was slowly lifting, or at least there was something going on in the 70s and 80s that they they were controlling. You know. They were, there was this living in fear of the Cold War, but there was also suddenly money, which wasn't there yeah. in the 50s and the 60s. So, so it looked the future looked bright as long as they didn't nuke each other. But she was pretty hard-nosed and um, I have to say that, you know, she was very principled and we've talked about compromise before. Uh, you know, Reagan was very good at compromising uh, to, to seek yeah. the, you know, the ultimate end game. Whereas that wasn't exactly the case for um, for Iron, Iron Maggie. For, 
for the for the Iron Maggie Thatcher, yeah. the Iron Lady Maggie Thatcher, and and this sort of really started to um, grate on the British people. You know, there wasn't there wasn't much compromise. Um, her responsibility and hard work really did clash with experiences of working class Britons, minorities, uh, and they desired the sort of structural change in the in the British elites. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, that was at odds with working class Britons, even though, as I said before, she was able to communicate very clearly. It just, it, you know, it wasn't a vision that they shared. So although the money was flooding into other places around the world, like the US especially, in, in, the, in the UK, I guess, they were still that was still really economically sort of depressed. Would that be right? In the 80s? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think it was... I think, look, I can't, I can't be certain, so I don't want to, I don't want to comment on that, but, um, you know, I think so. Yeah. She had a political platform, as did Reagan, of mm. that economic growth, um, lower inflation, renewed, a renewed international presence of the United Kingdom. I think it... It wasn't lost on the world that the UK now longer had the you know an expansionist really Commonwealth agenda mm. that it had previously, and she did start to have some successes. I think the world was very surprised when when Margaret Thatcher immediately responded to the aggression in the Falklands with with military. Force and I mean I know that's the reason years later I joined the army was watching and hearing her speeches and thinking about what that means that extension of diplomacy. But she was like I remember people in Australia like oh my god she has just sent the Royal Marines and you know and World War Two aircraft that they took out of storage you know (laughs) and they 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 went down there and you have to remember they were outgunned they were an expeditionary force in the 80s, which didn't really exist anymore. And like logistics, well, certainly challenged logistics yeah. over that sort of a distance. You've got to understand what that, what that was about. I mean, there was really flagging, you know, the UK had a flagging reputation. It was on the decline. Yeah. Uh, it didn't have faith in itself anymore. There was, there was no pride in, uh, well, you know, it, it, the country itself was seen as lacking pride in itself at that time. And, and I, think, I think Maggie realised that it was important to restore the glory of, of England. Yeah, they projecting, projecting combat power to the Falklands from Great Britain sent a very clear message around the world that they were still a superpower. And, I mean, you send the paras and you send the Royal Marines anywhere and you're going to send a pretty clear message to the world because the... They were, as far as they were concerned, it's a no-fail mission, and, yeah, and I mean, this isn't this isn't the this isn't the Falklands podcast. But if anyone really wants to hear about um, grit, determination, toughness in the face of adversity, like they didn't go down there with a lay-down mazir that they were going to win that. In fact, they should have been defeated in detail if you go and research. But yeah, they absolutely thumped the Argentinians. Yeah, and Amazing. that sent a very a very real message, not just around the world to the Commonwealth, but also to the Soviets, who may or may not have been bluffing their way through the Cold War with some of their equipment. We don't know. And so this this became a massive thing in the UK, very similar to when Churchill rallied the nation. You know, she had this yeah. massive amount of support when she said, okay, well, here we come. You know, like, and I think... 
the support probably wasn't there for the first couple of weeks while they were while they were banging the drum. But certainly when they started to to um, take back the Falklands, the British public really got behind her. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and she easily won elections. Um, 79, 83, 87, which just demonstrates her political success in translating her inspiration and motivation um, into leadership. Yeah, she did have some political failings, obviously. That, as you said before, that unsympathetic, harsh, tough... Yeah, that's right. The stagnant uh, economy around the period of of the Falklands as well made, made that difficult. Um, her, yeah. She had this reluctance to sanction South Africa agreed to hand yeah. over Hong Kong. Yeah, she certainly did have um, some political failings um, that did limit the extent of her inspiration and motivation. Um, but she was a tough leader um, and, you know, she she wasn't always... Uh, she didn't always have support and some sometimes she was seen as quite harsh. And, in fact, you know, we, we obviously know she was called the Iron Lady. Um, you know, that was her nickname, which it was actually the uh, Soviet media that gave her that name. Wow. And, and, she, and she wore that as a badge of honour and just went, yeah, you know what, I'm right. Yeah. And so inadvertently it was the, it was the Russians that added to her reputation. But, you know, she had her policies um, were, you know, pretty austere, austere economic policies. Um, and as you said before, she was determined to undermine social welfare and unions. Um, and, you know, that, that had that impact on the, yeah. uh, on the population. Um, now, in, interestingly, I think she's characterised as uh, seeking broad sort of what do you think about this and then just making a decision. There, there was no indecision that became her decision. And in the late 80s, around 80, 86, there was a bombing um, from Libyan terrorists in Berlin mm. and she immediately jumped on the US um, escalation of effort against Libya and, and went in to, to bomb Libya with the Americans. She Against Gaddafi. Yeah, and I mean, she would, have been, a, she would have been very happy years later, I'm sure, to see if she had a... Yeah, anyway. Yeah, the, it was the bombing of a disco in Berlin, I think, from memory. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, so look, you know, 7 out of 10, I think, you know, I think the, the pros, she was able to reach out to a lot of people. She used a the world's uh, economic riches to show that, hey, our turn's coming. She was very quick to to respond to military aggression in the Falklands, which um, sort of reinforced the empire around the world and, and particularly against the Soviets. Um, some of the cons, you know, I, I don't know. She was very, very quick to make a decision and stick to it and not be able to move to, to lessen it. Um, you know, I quite often say you can't get fat eating humble pie. I think, you know, Maggie That- Thatcher showed that the same is she true with... Humble she just didn't eat it. She, she just didn't eat humble just pie. She didn't bother. She just like, boom, here we go. That's um, it. Yeah, and, and there, was, there was moves afoot in the Labor Party to show that there's, there was other ways to govern. And, um, you know, with the crushing of the, of the unions... You know, they wanted to show that actually uh, she was a, an elitist. So that started to work against her in, in the later years. 
Yeah, um, and she she became even less conservative uh, as her as her prime ministership uh, progressed, and she just essentially became unpopular, not just with much of the people, but with the with the political elite as well. Yeah, and you know, like the Australian Liberal Party in the in the two thousand ten sort of era, ten to twenty, her enemy was also internal more than external. Um, she, she, no one wanted to go up against her externally because she would crush them. But internally, um, it was the silent majority conversations happening behind her back that tried to soften the liberal approach um, that ultimately would lead to her downfall. So she wasn't able to inspire and motivate uh, the team that she was in. It was the teams below and the teams above. Yeah, it's, it's a hard conversation because... I think she certainly did inspire the team at the start. And I think as it progressively waned, that's why she she lacked that ability to... Mo- you know, that's, I, I guess that's why her score is sort of around the 7 out of 10, because she wasn't able to inspire, you know, maintain the rage for the entire her duration of her prime ministership. Yeah. So oh. providing purpose and direction, 9 out of 10 for this, because mm. I think she was aligned with America and Reagan in particular, um, with using financial pressure. So, so there was an, the Cold War was becoming less and less about nuclear weapons and the military and more and more about capitalist power um, and seeding that capitalist power through, through Russia. And, and, you know, I mean, she was able to maintain that um, and keep everyone in, in the UK in line with that. And, yeah. you know, remembering that she inherited a really weak, unproductive, unproductive economy from the Labor government. Um, inflation Inflation's was quite, yeah, 20%. Inflation in the 20%, yeah. Yeah, and unemployment was high as well. Um, yeah, and then the oil crisis, you know, played a significant factor in in what she inherited, yeah? Yeah, that's right. And, and of course... You know, a budget deficit. She inherited, you know, a significant budget deficit um, and de- decreases as a result of the, um, you know, smashing the unions. There was uh, decreases in output and efficiency from the manufacturing sector as well. So it was pr- it was pretty sad sort of economic time at the time. Right, and but what she showed was she was able to put together a strategy and a glide path, and then start privatising utilities. And bringing yeah. money back into the UK and, and, and getting rid of some of the debt that the government had. Reagan and Thatcher banding together, ensuring the Western democracy. Yeah. Would well, it was a team effort, wasn't it? They, they essentially double teamed the, the Soviet Union and they realised that they had to as well because if they, you know, these two great bastions of Western democracy didn't team, team up, then the Soviets may in fact climb across one or both. Um, yeah. And so I, I think... It, you know, it did help that Reagan and Thatcher got along well. They actually were quite good friends. Were Do you think the IRA were scared of her or do you think the IRA were negotiating perhaps? Because I noticed the trend while she was in power was that those those attacks started to drop. Mm, uh, absolutely. And um, Thatcher couldn't stand the IRA and she refused to negotiate with them. Uh, in fact, increased the uh, deployments, the you know the British Army deployments, negotiated the 1985 Anglo-Irish Agreement, which saw the UK and Ireland agree to help devolve Northern Ireland from centralised British rule. So, this in effect did 
um, lower the political violence in the mid-80s and prevented Northern Ireland from joining the Republic. Um, and a quick review of the attacks at the time, you know, just roughly, uh, the numbers dropped from 12 attacks in 85, seven attacks in 86, and only three in 87 and 88. Yeah, right. So, so there was, you know, that policy of not negotiating with the IRA and increasing military force... Mm. Um, really did put IRA's feet to the fire at that time. Yeah. And then you've got, um, you know, like Rhodesia. And she yeah. was, you know, there'd be a lot of people that wouldn't have liked her around the whole collapsing of white minority rule in Rhodesia mm. um, through the Lancaster Lancaster Agreement in 1979. And, and she put diplomatic pressure on South Africa to abandon apartheid. Yeah, um, but still refused economic sanctions against South Africa. So there was obviously some, a lot of terse words going on, but not much economic action. I think there was probably some economic benefit in the negotiation or the trade with South Africa that you know needed to, you know, the, the UK needed in order to drag itself out of its economic malaise as well. Yeah, and then if we look at another uh, aspect to the sort of economic Cold War fight. You know, they, they, they bought cutting-edge or built cutting-edge Trident nuclear submarines. They moved NATO nuclear weapons onto, onto UK soil. They, and this was seen as a cost-effective measure to, to counter the massive yeah. spend that Russia was... Um Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, uh, sp- spending on on nuclear weapons and armament. Now, interestingly, mm. what's really interesting about the Cold War that a lot of people don't get is when you invest in the military and invest in equipment and 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 then don't fight. What happens is over time that becomes there becomes diminishing returns of of your equipment. That's right. We're seeing this. We're seeing something very similar happen at the moment in uh, in Taiwan actually because. Every time the Chinese send a sortie over, it wears down the Taiwanese defence force because they have to respond to it. So if your military is 100 times the size of another one and you just probe it, you probe it, you probe it, just by virtue of the probing, the, the other military gets worn down, their equipment gets worn, and it becomes an economic fight, not a military fight. Now, that's interestingly, that's what the Brits were doing to and what NATO was doing to Russia, they weren't yeah. probing, but they were moving things around and they were setting things up and they were faking things. And what that was doing was making Russia respond economically. And over time, we found this after the Cold War when, um, when, the, when the wall fell, all of those armaments and everything left behind was rubbish. It was it, rotten. It had been, yeah. it had been degraded. It couldn't, yeah. afford, it couldn't afford its way out of a wet paper bag. And those uh, Trident submarines, um, you know, as you said, cutting edge, and they were drawing out the Soviet, the Soviet fleet in order to uh, to right. find where they were located. Yeah, and we won't go into too many details because it's probably still classified. Yeah. But there was ways for them to to fake 
everything they were doing and and just drawing the Russians further and further down the down the down the path of economic ruin. Um, yeah. And Thatcher was behind much of that in in uh, in the eighties, and it was again a, a direct counter to the USSR. You know, yeah, yeah and interesting time. Yeah, really interesting. And and you know there was money also. They didn't have money to spare, and yet they were still shoring up um, Spain and Italy to stop you know left wing terrorist groups from operating there or for gaining political control. And mm. you know nothing would be worse than having. You imagine Italy being as left, you know, and it's already left leaning, you know, <laughs> just the population is. They're just they're just yeah. like that as a population. They're a little bit left of center, and then you and then you start to radicalize them. You know, they, there would be nothing worse than having a whole population, you know, of, of Spaniards and Italians as um, you know socialist, you know, terrorists. Um, yeah, well, I mean. She had a uh, instrumental role in um, negotiating favourable terms for for Britain to join the EU mm. um, in the I think it was the Single Europe Act of eighty six uh, by securing the exclusion of Britain from those more divisive EU controls and getting a rebate on British contributions to the EU. Well, I'm, um, I'm just laughing. You know, I'm laughing now because of Brexit. It's like, let's yeah, exactly. That's exactly go full right. Circle. Break, Brexit fixed that, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, there was, um, you know, the takeover of Hong Kong. Mm. Um, yeah, which was yeah, wasn't that a lease? That was a 99 year lease. Wasn't that likely to? And I don't understand the background to that. So that's not not an area of expert. It was non non contested, is my understanding. Yeah. Right. Okay. Mm. So they just allowed that to well lapse you know, over. That might have been a, a geopolitical failing. Yeah. So, yeah, her, her pros anyway, um, really, you know, achieving her economic goals, lowering inflation over time. Again, everything takes time. Um, mm. limiting, limiting trade union power, I think, helped. Yeah, and... She's, yeah. I, I just like her communication style. Yeah. For me, yeah. for me it, seemed to be, it seemed to be a mark of the times, didn't it? Yeah. You know, when you when you're talking about the Reagans and the and the Thatchers and and the their opposition at the time really um, really took them to task in the media. You know, you can imagine the Twitter storm that would be around Reagan and, and Thatcher if they were around and in power today. Yeah, um, just just imagine that. Um, but uh, I I really like to clear and concise communication. Um, and it's, it was actually one of her greatest strengths in my view. Which again comes back to if you want to be a great leader, clearly communicate. Um, yeah. Some of her, or, or, or the main failing for me was just, and, and with a last name like Connolly, I guess, um, my, the main failing for me was her inability to, to broker a, a deal with the IRA um, yeah. and to understand, to understand the sensitivities around, uh, around those issues, you know. Yeah, but to be fair, those uh, you know that was a counterinsurgency operation, and we've we've all you know um, watched how counterinsurgency operations have unfolded over recent years. They're not exactly simple; um, they take time, and it, you know maybe a failure, a failure of her ability to to defeat the IRA is maybe a bit tough, maybe a bit harsh, because uh, uh, we're still dealing with counterinsurgency operations over a decade later, and certain. Um, yeah. Part of the world. Yeah. Fair cool. Um, all right, so leadership style, uh, seven out of ten for me. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yes. Um, she was dictatorial. Better than, 
participative, yeah, in, sure. participative in some ways, especially with Reagan. Um, she was very much the the Iron Lady is actually a pretty good bloody, you know, Monica, which, for, she, which she loved. So yeah. you know, she embraced she embraced this style. Yeah, and I mean, we've gone on about the budget and how she's implemented it. Um, you know, her loyalties into her own party probably that dictatorial style ended up being her undoing. I think towards the end. Yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah, that's right. You couldn't have a contrary opinion in a conversation with her because she just you know. Right over the top. Yeah, so we're told. Um, told. Yeah, and internationally, she, you know, was very, if you think about it, really collaborative with NATO in particular and very uh, receiving of NATO support and giving NATO support. Mm. Um, and, you know, that, that whole, she saw it as uh, better together, greater you know, British sovereignty supported by... She still saw... And and they were. She still saw herself, and they are today, a superpower um, economically, you know. So, yeah, she she used that to her advantage. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and just... Yeah, go on. Yeah, I just think her style led to so much discontent within the Tories. Um, You know, she pushed a lot of things through, um, and despite internal opposition... Mm. Um, you know, uh, she did, as we said, refuse to negotiate with the IRA um, and the, her own party wanted to uh, wanted to set up conversations and dialogue. Mm. Um, she was just, she was at odds with her party often, not always, but often. And, um, you, you know, it, it led to so much discontent within the party. You know, eventually she was forced to resign when she was challenged by her internal opponents. Yeah. Um, and this really demonstrates how being that dictator, being that decisive or assertive leader when you are always in that mode can hurt as much as help you, um, particularly in a Western, you know, in a Western democracy. Yeah, yeah, cool. Her enduring legacy, uh, I gave her an 8 out of 10. And, you know, she, she does generally leave the f- good feelings in people well, definitely abroad in the Commonwealth. I'm not mm. sure if everyone in the UK, if you listen to some people in the UK, they are quite mixed uh, feelings about her. Um, yep. But, you know, she was the first female British Prime Minister. Yeah, I I mean, absolutely. That's a legacy right there. Right? Yeah, broke that glass ceiling for, for women in politics. Yeah. Um, yeah, she was able to make her ideas of opposing the welfare state limiting union power, a really popular type of leadership that is long-standing today. It's probably changed the face of conservative politics because they, they, do, they do fundamentally oppose some of the, uh, some of the union power. power. Yeah. power. And that's true, and, and that's sort of translated into Australian politics too, if you... You know, if you if you notice that uh, true conservatives will um, tend to be at odds with the the role and the um, ideals of of the, especially those large unions, those large powerful unions. Yeah, you want more of a free market as a conservative um, and less government control, and they see Correct. union control as an extension of of a type of government control. Um, and another thing 
too. I remember you and I talked about the Euro scepticism that she yep. was able to. Yeah, do you want to talk about that? I really like that point. Yeah, well, um, she made that scepticism more of a prominent idea. It wasn't at the time, um, but especially amongst the Conservative Party, and and this really has a lasting impact today. Um, uh, on the previously pro-EU Conservative Party. So that's an interesting concept in itself, that the Conservatives, up until Thatcher, were very pro-EU. Yeah, and so, probably living in their shadow a little bit, like yeah. they weren't as a... Because the, the Parisians had made themselves mm. very elite after World War Two, and I think that the Brits felt felt less cultured and less less economic. Mm. You know, and, the, and the Germans had suddenly built this, you know, massive, you know... Uh, conservative population and yep. economic powerhouse in a really short amount of time after yeah. World War Two. Yep. Um, incredible when you think about what they what they did, what they went through, and then the reforms. Yeah. And I think that the UK was still a nineteen fifties UK in the nineteen eighties, <laughs> watching all these, you know, countries yeah. thirty years you know, later. Yeah. Well, amongst the Conservatives, I think I think she's still thought of as one of the greatest prime ministers. And there's there's different um, there's different views around sort of non uh, warlike and warlike uh, prime ministers, so non wartime and wartime prime ministers. And you know, um, she's still got a really uh, str- a strong supporter base even now amongst amongst Conservatives. But like uh, Reagan. Um, those that those left of centre um, think that she was one of one of the worst, right? And and there's people who think that she didn't make any decisions for herself um, mm. as far as as far as international relations goes, and she would just she would just toe the line with the US. But well, I don't believe that. No, I don't second. believe that either. I think I think. Do you know what? I I think the UK had as much, if not more, to lose from losing the Cold War as the US. So, you know, Thatcher, uh, strong conservative Christian values, um, was really fighting hard. And, you know, there is this persistent belief that um, the, the UK will um, um, was just following along. But that's it's just not true. I mean... You know, in the event of conflict, um, it wasn't necessarily just the US that were yeah. uh, was going to be was going to be, you know, harmed by it. Yeah, no, nah, fair call. Um, how did it end for for her? Do you think? Well, um, ten out of ten. No, not ten out of ten. I think I think less. I think we're still probably on a. You know, these are still. She was eighty. She was eighty. She was eighty-seven. You know when she died in two thousand thirteen. Yeah, right. She had a state funeral attended by the Queen, um, which is well, the second. Little... Which is the second and most recent time the Queen attended a funeral of a Prime Minister since Winston Churchill. Yeah, right. So you know the Queen liked her. Um, yeah, that's right. Well, yeah. I think it might have been a love-hate relationship. Maybe I think they they I think they did butt heads a bit as well. Yeah, you know? well, she wasn't um, empathetic with the population. No, 
She was quasi tyrannical and harsh. I think is you know you could probably describe her as that. But she was strong and principled, and you know had a had a vision. She was you know anti communism, which was important at the at the time. Hey, she was the only prime minister to win three elections in the row in a row. Yeah. Um, the serving PM since the early eighteen hundreds. You know, uh, for, for all of her, and we'll get to this. I know you'll get to it in a minute about how many elections she won, and you know. How, yeah. how Howard-esque she was, um, or maybe he's Thatcher-esque. But um, do you know what? Do you know what job she went into after she after her final prime ministership? Uh, look, I, I can't remember. She went. I, I, she I went. Read it, she went and worked for a tobacco company. Oh, that's right. I have heard. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, as I was saying, that she, different times. She was, you know. Different times, absolutely. Um, you know, my old man worked for uh, for Rothmans. Uh, um, yeah, but she had the most votes cast for her under British, um, you know, under any British prime minister with forty million votes cast for her during the elections. Wow! And she's, as I said, constantly hailed as one of the best uh, prime ministers and, um, and one of the most impactful Britons in history. Three three elections in a row is pretty well back then. Well, now yeah. it's unheard of. Um, yeah, That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I think overall, you know, if we tally all that up. It's it's thirty eight out of fifty. It's pretty high. Very rarely does anyone get over forty out of fifty on our show, um, <laughs> except you and me. Uh, <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm about three. Um, but yeah, you look. You no, know, I have my good and bad days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She, she used her personality and politics um, in order to persuade and inspire. She was, she's like that great auntie that you just did not cross um, who just happened to have a degree in chemistry and um, was the smartest person in most rooms and if she wasn't, she'd tell you she was anyway. She was, um, she was very strict, very strict. I must, I must but, have met your auntie. Yeah, she was very strict, <laughs> very strict but fair. Yeah. Um, and I think she inspired a lot of people in a short period of time, which is why, sure. which is why, and and you know, let's not let's not beat around the bush here. Her greatest achievement, other than supporting Reagan in, in the Cold War, was undoubtedly, um, you know, launching on the Falklands in the time she did, in the speed she yeah. did, and the success that they had, had a massive impact on the world. Uh, it really did change the shape of. Uh, of international relations and extending power through through military, um, the rest of the world took notice of that. In particular, yep. um, the Commonwealth nations looked at that and went, "Okay, we're going to be we can we will be supported." Yep. And because there was a, a real flavour of expansionism, and I, I wonder if if Thatcher's and you say expansionism, you mean Russian, Russian communist yeah. aggression. Absolutely. And I, and I wonder, and I've not read it anywhere, but I just wonder if maybe that was a test for her of, oh. of if I don't do this, what is the second order effect from a communist perspective through Asia down through Singapore into New Guinea, Australia, all these other places? I, I, I actually have read that and um, that was in- that was entirely what she was thinking, and I and I mentioned it earlier that you know there was this flagging reputation, you know, the UK's military and the UK as as a um, you know as a power. Um, there was this, or well, Great Britain as a power. There was this 
belief that they were on the wane and um, uh, this this had to be done in order to restore restore confidence. Do so want, do want to, it was a show of force. Do you want to know a secret? No, tell me. What secret? There was British troops in Argentina. Uh, I, I would say they were long-range recon, right? They were someone. They were something. <laughs> but, they were, but, that, but, but there was a, a sovereign country that had another sovereign country, special forces in there. And, and the, that's the thing, right, that she was committed not just to, um, to the Falklands but a wider, military, yeah. a wider military assault on Argentina yeah. um, if required. Um, history will show that uh, as documents become more and more released. And you can read about that now. You can just um, search through Wikipedia and those sort of yeah. places. But, yeah, very, very, very interesting. And, and you know, those, those troops were able to... Um, you know, the, the Royal Marines in particular, the um, Paras, you know, nothing but respect for those. And I, and I worked with a few of those guys in the in the early mm. mid-90s um, when I was in the UK on exchange. I worked with some of those veterans from the Falklands and, uh, you know, they are a different, they were a different breed of, of guy. Yeah, they, they, there was, yeah, tough, like just tougher than you could imagine back then. And and low socioeconomic um you know backgrounds, and 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 the prime minister sent them somewhere, and they went and did the job. Um, but yeah, did send a message, and yeah, I hey, think you were talking. So, sorry, just to dive in there, you were talking about you think that her greatest legacy was the Falklands show of essentially show of force yeah. around the world. Um, I, I would have to say that probably more lasting was um, her saving the British economy. So I'd, I'd sort of pin that on her, and I think that was probably, you know, that that set up the UK. Um, that probably set up the UK more. Wow! You know, from an economic perspective, the leadership because theorist and the leadership practitioner bump heads over. Yeah. <laughs> no, you maybe you're right. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the second order effects of of the global world order for the Cold War, but but we we already established it was a money fight. Yeah, it was a money fight. Now if if the UK had continued to uh, spiral downwards, mm. then it was out of the battle, right? And and as it was, they were already depleting the Russian um, war stocks, uh, just economically through through uh, probing and and building, yeah. you know. And yeah, so it's interesting. I I just wonder if she hadn't have gone to the Falklands, what uh, what message that would have sent, what second order effects there would have been if the Falklands had have fallen. Um, I guess we will never know, mm. but you are right. A crippled economic UK in the in the in the late eighties, early nineties, um, maybe the wall wouldn't have fallen <laughs> as well. Well, exactly. Yeah. I think about that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, wow. maybe, wow. maybe if they were broke. So, so what does so what does uh, Thatcher tell us about leadership? Mm. Look. I... I think it's, again, this is contextual because she was a leader for the time. You know, if you went to, if you tried to be that leader now, and I think Theresa May maybe was trying to emulate some of Thatcher's, um, you know, not very well, but trying to emulate some of Thatcher's abilities. Um, and I, 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 you know, in, in being that staunch, you know, unemotional, let me get this done, I'm, you know, but... I just I think that what it actually shows us is more about what not to do from an empathetic standpoint because ultimately it's your demise. I think she would have been fundamentally more successful even if that's possible 
by by having a platform of of more empathy and connection yeah. and connection internally to our party. Um, yeah, I agree. I think that the Brit stiff upper lip was her saving grace. I don't think she would have been successful in a place like Australia where we where we cut down tall poppies. Um, I think she would have been she would have been just destroyed in detail. Um, you know, it, it's, it doesn't surprise me that we're still yet to see an Australian um, female Prime Minister voted in uh, by the population as opposed to the party. And I think, yeah. that, I think, that in, I think our chances of having that will, will only occur when we have a, an empathetic... Um, you know, I mean, you look, at, you look at the New Zealand Prime Minister at the moment, you know, and how, how empathetic she is and how much Australians love her. You know, most Australians <laughs> love her. So I think it, te- it teaches us a, l- a little bit about what not to do. Um, yeah, interesting you, s- you say that. Um, I, think, I think people like her as a person, but politically it's still very much divided along conservative and, and um, you know, sort of Labor and Liberal lines. Yeah, and I, I also think that she is really, well, it shows us uh, her leadership style does show us that the buck stops at you. Um, that she was really good at. She would go, right, I've heard everything. This is my decision. Yeah. And, um, you know, you know, leadership is compelling other people to do what you want them to do because they want to do it. And, yeah. and she was able to go, right, I've made this decision. Now who's with me? So she was able to rally a base prior, make a decision, yep. and then rally more behind her. Um, that is a real skill. That's a very, very difficult skill. And and she's got that leadership presence as well. I mean, we've talked about this many times before. Um, having that charisma, you know, it's not it's not talked about enough. It's not a, it, it's not talked about enough, but it's not essential. But it almost goes back to that sort of I think it's the eighteen hundreds eighteen hundreds theory of the the great man theory of leadership, right. and you know that you can only you know, you're born to it and you're charismatic and, and you lead by charm and charisma and those sorts of things. And and certainly uh, Margaret Thatcher had charisma in spades yeah. um, when she was communicating, when she was in a room full of people, you knew she was the leader. And, um, you know, they, they were great conversations. Yeah, no, I agree. Charisma is the thing that's talked about the least because it's one of the hardest things to teach. Um if you don't, if you're a leader, if you're a CEO, if you're yeah. a managing director, if you're a general yep. manager, you either have charisma, or you've hired mm. some people below you who've got it. There's no no doubt in my mind. No doubt, one hundred percent. That's building a team to to um, cover the bases. I guess re- reinforce uh, reinforce yourself and and um, I guess overcome your weaknesses, but. I think I think charisma's almost gone out of favour with a lot of people that discuss well, leadership. We'll bring it back. Um, Let's bring it back. Listen, man, I, you know, enjoyed it. Maggie Thatcher, I for one, really, really, really grateful that, you know, she was who she was. I think that um, her life and legacy has profoundly changed conservative politics globally. Um, I think that she showed a lot of women what, what good looks like, personally. Yeah. Um, and a lot of men, you know, showed a lot of men, hey, you know, let's 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 open up some opportunity and and um, equity. Yeah. yeah, and and I think that you know this has been a, a good conversation. Um, that certainly she had more pros than than cons, mate. Yeah, indeed. Um, 
Yeah, I think uh, Margaret Thatcher is one of the one of the greater leaders for me. And aside from you know some of her um, you know leadership aspects or styles um, that you know didn't serve her well over the long term, I think on the main she was the leader that they needed at that particular time and I think she rose to that challenge and as we discussed right from the start she was preparing herself um you know through her education to get to where she was uh, and uh, I remember reading even as even as a child she thought she'd be uh, the prime minister yeah so right back right back when she was young so she had this vision and that uh, stayed true throughout her throughout her tenure right yeah let's wrap it up Thanks, Bram. Thanks, mate. Righto. Thanks for listening, gang. If you'd like to find out about our parent company and the leadership and resilience training and workshops that they offer, please head to the Hindsight Leadership website, www.hindsightleadership.com. Hindsight Leadership, all one word. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, and remember, every dollar helps, you can do that through the podcast website at www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. There's a donation tab at the bottom of the main page, and all donations are really appreciated. They keep the show on the road. And if you're interested in the Warrior U military preparation course, whether that's just the physical training component or the whole cultural training package, this can also be found through the podcast website, www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. And just click on the training tab. Righto. Thanks for listening. Right, if you're still listening to this, it's the end of Podcast Club. I'm going to give away two T-shirts. First two people uh, to direct message either myself or Trent through the Hindsight the hindsight Instagram page. Um, we'll get a free Warrior U T-shirt. Get cracking. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.